0: He's a creator, an innovator. His passion is why we listen. His knowledge is why we want to be educated. He really has spent his life focusing on people that make excuses. With a man who has turned around over 800 bars throughout the world. Bar Rescue's John Taffer. If you do tomorrow what you did today, you will get tomorrow what you got today. So while I'm off shooting Bar Rescue, I didn't want to leave you guys with no podcast. So here's what we're doing. For the next few podcasts, we're going to do classic, best of, but they're not clip shows. We're going to run our best podcasts ever. So we're going to do some encore podcast performances the next few weeks. And then new podcasts will start on Thursday, March 5th. And the classic ones, Corey, that we picked are pretty fucking good. Oh, every episode's good, John. Ah, well, thanks, buddy. But some are better than others, and we picked the best ones. So, next few weeks, classic episodes of No Excuses Podcast. We're back with fresh new episodes on March 5th. And keep an eye out, guys. Bar Rescue starts on March 1st. But Amaris Zaragoza is, a, is a, uh, one of my favorite television actresses. And, and, and I mean, you've done so many... Uh, uh, different shows uh, um, from CSI to to comedy type roles, et cetera. But I want to talk about uh, um, your beginnings and and your fight with MS because you and I actually share something. I'm I'm on the board of Cleveland Clinic, the Lou Ruvo Center for Brain Health. Oh, wow. And, And we at the Cleveland Clinic in Nevada have the Lou Ruvo Center for Brain Health, and we have one of the best research facilities in the world. And we work on Alzheimer's, Huntington's disease, MS, and all neurological diseases. So it's something very close to my heart. I work on it all the time. We raise money for it all the time. I'm surrounded by the best doctors all the time when I'm with Cleveland Clinic and and our teams and our annual get-togethers and board meetings and and medical science reviews and and everything. So we share a commitment, uh, uh, even though I'm looking at it from the outside, of course, and you from the inside. We share a commitment to solving that and finding wow. cures for that. And and uh, so I wanted to talk for a couple of seconds because when you were young, I'm talking mm-hmm. 14, 15 years old. So you're a little girl in school and you grew up where?
1: I grew up in Kansas, in Hayesville, Kansas.
0: So, so you're a Midwest girl growing yeah. up in a Midwest town uh-huh. surrounded by Midwest values, I'm guessing, right? And that type of an upbringing. <laughs> What did you want to be when you were 13, 14 years old?
1: Um, that was probably right around the time I was realizing I wasn't actually going to be an astronaut and was switching over to modeling and acting. I wanted to be an actor.
0: So you did. So you knew that. So when you I got, did. So, so did you start acting and doing performances when you were in high school
1: and such? Yeah, I was. I mean, I was in the kindergarten. I was the lead in the kindergarten play. I was always doing it all the time. And and um, my mom wanted to be a singer, so she would drink whiskey and sing Patsy Cline all the time. And I'd be doing that with her. So it was always kind of something that was in the background.
0: So, so uh, uh, because when I watch you in your various roles and such, and I've seen you in some interviews and stuff, you've got a lot of confidence. So I guess you started Thank this you. at a very young age.
1: Yeah, I did. I mean, technically, I started at 21 um, with real classes, and I came to Los Angeles when I was 22. And um, I never – people chose me off the street over and over and over. So I was 15. Somebody chose me off the street. I was 20. Somebody chose me off the street in San Francisco. Um, And then I moved here, and then I got chosen again. So it was kind of fate anyway. I wanted to do it, but the universe was definitely leading the way.
0: So the stars aligned, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> so when you say on the street, you don't literally mean somebody came up to you and tapped you on the shoulder and said, hi, come be in my television show. Or do you?
1: Yeah, multiple times. Yeah, so totally. <laughs> tell,
0: tell me that story. Tell me the first story. That's that's an amazing thing.
1: Um, the first time was in Wichita, Kansas. I skipped school and I was at the mall. And, um <laughs> This woman named Erin Simica came up and um, tapped me on the shoulder and she took, ended up taking me to New York and doing modeling stuff and then they sent me off to Tokyo and I traveled for a year and, and it completely changed my life and I'm still in touch with her now and we're still working together. And then when I was 21, um, I was at the Hate Street Festival being a hippie in San Francisco <laughs> <laughs> and somebody tapped on my shoulder, Renita Whited in LA, she's a casting director, yeah. and she asked me to be in a Verizon wireless commercial. And I had never seen money like that. And I, I booked it, and I got all these checks, and I was, you know, poor from Kansas. And I was like, oh, my God, this is what I have to do. So I moved to L.A. immediately. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't blame you. So did you have – I grew up in New York, so I, I didn't grow up in the Midwest. But did you have any kind of culture shock when, when you moved to L.A. in the first place and when you went to Los Angeles? And, and, and was there an intimidation factor? Or, or tell me about that transition.
1: Well when I the first time when I left I was 17 and I was in I went to Tokyo alone and that was my big culture shock and the buildings were crazy and I thought that the construction guys looked like Fraggle Rock and they had their little weird <laughs> white hats on and it was really really insane but I was also very fearless and I was like I'll never be in this part of the world again I'm going to do everything I can so I did Everything I could. I went everywhere. I bought plane tickets. I would work, make money, and then go somewhere. And then when I was poor again, I would go back to the city in Model Asia for eight So I had this huge, I guess, um, recalibration of my brain. Wow, <laughs> at no, that but time.
0: that's amazing though, because it almost opens up these doors, right? Yeah. And this whole and being world being alone, goes in.
1: Yeah, being alone and being able to hold your own with all these people that aren't your culture and, and trying all the new food and running around. And, you know, it was, it was amazing. And it really uh, solidified my confidence in myself.
0: You know, it's interesting. I talk on this podcast all the time, um, about people who don't do things, put excuses in front of them, right? Mm -hmm. I'm too scared to go to Japan, right? It's inconvenient for me to go to Japan. I don't have the money to go to Japan. I don't have the clothes to go to Japan. You could have come up with a list of, of 20 reasons why you shouldn't have gone yeah but yet at that time you had the courage to go
1: I did as a teenager too as a young girl who'd never even been on a plane I'd never seen the ocean um, or a mountain at that time and um, so the first little print job I got was in Chicago and they were like get yourself up here and you can do this and it was going to pay me $800 or something and for Claire's boutique and I was like well I can't I don't have a hundred dollars for the plane ticket was a hundred dollars. And I was like, I don't, I don't have a hundred dollars. I've never had a hundred dollars. I can't do it. I don't know. I can't buy the Polaroid uh, film. Like I'm out. And this woman came over and she was like, listen, you sell your tapes, you sell your CDs. You're never going to get a chance like this again. If you blow it, you're stuck here forever. You do it. And I was, she just got through and I was like, okay. And, um, and we figured it out and I got up there and I never came back.
0: (laughs) Wow. So you think about all the other girls that could have been, or guys that could have been your age at that time in life, and, yeah. they, and they didn't take that one step, that would have changed everything. and yeah. and, and I talk about that a lot on the show and how even entrepreneurs and how every day that people want to do something, each day that passes, it becomes less likely that they do it.
1: Yeah, exactly. You have to count to five and make your first step or you're not going to do it, right?
0: Yeah. So, so, okay, so now you have the confidence to go to Japan. You're a young girl. You go off on your own. You go to work mm-hmm. there. Now you start getting offered big roles, big, produ- big productions.
1: Yeah. Big that's names right. around you. Were you ever intimidated by any of that? Of course, yes. Absolutely.
0: And, and how did you use that intimidation? Because it didn't make you freeze, that's for sure, because I see you on camera. So did you use that intimidation as like a tool? Did you push it aside? How did you deal with that?
1: Yeah. You know, I think my personality, I'm a people pleaser. And if there's an awkward pause, I want to laugh and, you know, and do something. And so one of my first big auditions, a couple of them, I was like, I must have just bombed because, but I booked them. One of them, I didn't know what to do. So I just started crawling across the desk towards (laughs) the (laughs) casting director. (laughs) Cause it was supposed to be this femme fatale, like sexy woman. And I didn't ever consider myself sexy. And I was like, I guess she would crawl across the desk. You know? <laughs> <But> I, just, <laughs> I did really big stuff. And then one time I, you know, my emotions, I can go to 11 in two seconds. And I ended up going a little far and I kicked to the chair and threw it around. And, and the woman called my, my manager and was like, she's really great. She's a movie star, but I thought she might kill me. <laughs> hit her with a chair on accident i was like i'm so sorry so i had to learn to rein it in and be a little more subtle
0: that's funny i've ever seen my show but i'm known for throwing things and doing things like that on my tv show so i can relate to what you're saying sometimes people step back an extra foot or two when i'm around just to to get out of the line of fire if you will yeah
1: exactly so if i'm nervous watch out and i might throw something
0: at you so so so, uh uh so now now um You're starting to do this work, and we all have these moments in life. So you're you're living now. When you started doing your TV roles, now you moved from San Francisco to L.A.? Yep. Okay, so you're living in L.A., and you're getting these roles, and your phone is ringing, isn't it?
1: Yeah, all the time. So busy. It was amazing.
0: Was there a moment when you came back to your apartment and said to yourself, Holy shit, I've actually... I've made it. I'm successful. This is my real career. Did you have a moment of self-gratification like that ever?
1: I really didn't until it was way later. Um, I would run around, I mean, in L.A., you're in your car eight hours a day. Yeah. I'm paying bills all over the phone while I'm sitting in traffic. I'd get home at night and either study and go right to bed. And But I was also in a band, so sometimes I would go... Uh, play music and so I was just like so busy so busy and I was having the time of my life and Enjoying my friends and all of that stuff, but I was never like oh, I'm successful I was like let's take advantage of this while it is because it's never gonna last forever mm-hmm. And then after you know, maybe 10 15 years Then I was like wow this is my career and I, I still don't think wow I've made it But I think you know what I wrote a script. I have a couple shorts. I've directed like now. I'm ready to go to another level so I don't think you ever sit back and say, ooh, I'm successful. You know, It's yeah. always like, what can I do next? What can I turn this into? How can I leverage myself and grow?
0: I had a, a moment once where, when I uh, – it was actually a moment when I owned a big property, and, and I was in it late at night. And I'm in this huge nightclub, multimillion dollar, and I'm literally turning the lights off, and there's hundreds of employees, but I'm there by myself. And there was oh, a moment when, when uh, I realized that, wow, you know, I'm at a point that I never expected to. But probably my greatest uh, media moment was with my mother. You'll get a kick out of this story. I never expected to be on television. I'm a businessman. So I launched a reality show now 10 years ago. I'm doing my 185th episode this week. Wow. So we've had now a nine-year run. It's very successful bar rescue. My mother is in an assisted living home, and I tell her I'm doing a TV show. I'm going to do a TV show. Well, she got to see the show from her hospital room, uh, uh, um, and she called me. And the first thing she said to me, of course, when you're on TV the first time, I'm guessing you probably spoke to your parents pretty soon after your first TV appearance, too. Well, the first call I make is to my mother, and I say, Mom, what do you think? What do you think? She said, Son, that bald spot was just terrible. And that was the first comment I ever got from my mother for my first television appearance. (laughs) (laughs) But but, So, Amara, I, I have a really interesting question to ask you as one who directs and is on the other side of the camera. When you have a role in, let's say, a CSI, just to pluck something out of the sky, yeah. On your way to set that day, you've read your script, you've had some conversations, you have a certain understanding of the character to some degree. Cool. Do you really understand uh, uh, what and how you're going to play that character, typically before you get there? Or do you arrive at set with a blank blackboard and take it in on set and and, and then construct the character in your mind?
1: No, I definitely arrive already knowing. Um, and... I was working with Billy Baldwin, and he was like, if you care anything about anything, of course you rehearse. We were having a debate over whether you should rehearse a lot, and someone was saying, no, you don't rehearse. You want it to be fresh. And he just was like, no, that is not it at all. Um, I rehearse a lot. I know how I want to do it. I know her voice, and then it can change. But when you're on set, the props don't feel like yours. It's not like you get to hang out in that world and feel comfortable. So you have to know already in your mind and create it for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and then obviously what the other characters are doing and the other actors are doing is going to change and bounce off of it and make things come more alive. But I definitely come in with an idea. Yeah.
0: I know this, this is probably a question you've been asked before, but does directing make you a better actor?
1: I think so. Yeah. And I think acting probably makes you a better director. I would think Um, so. Does it make you push
0: yourself more? Does it, as a director, you understand boundaries more, so it it allows you as an actor to move within those boundaries more comfortably?
1: Yeah, you understand a little bit more what they need and what they're talking about, you know, and and just watching other people do it from the other side shows a lot, too, because... You know, I can be really internal and go off of only my feelings and my intuition and like, oh, I want to get this thing. And then all of a sudden you're directing and you're like, oh, wait, but this is what I need. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, yes. so you become a little more understanding, I think, for sure. And then also the technicalities can help things, yep. knowing right. what the technicalities are that they need.
0: Yeah. So, so what do you enjoy more, acting or directing?
1: Oh, my gosh. Um, they're so different. And I just started directing. So um, I'm actually working on a project right now to start co-directing with somebody because it's really hard to direct and act at the same time to get yeah. to take the different hats off for me. Um, I'm not sure because acting is so internal and I you, it's such a cathartic release, especially when it's emotional. And mm-hmm. I love ramping it up. I love fighting. I love crying. I love all of that. It's a stuff. rush. And then it's a rush yeah. and it's physical. Yeah. And emotional. And then with directing, I think in a really visual way and I love writing and so figuring out how to like show this thing it's um it's a little more intellectual so i like that too but it's not as much of like a until you're done (laughs) the first day i directed i threw up afterwards
0: Really, that was the tension of it you mean i
1: I was so nervous yeah and i i didn't know if i did well and i just it was so hard all day and i was so like oh and then afterwards it went great and then i threw up
0: (laughs) (laughs) funny so uh how do you deal with uh You, as you say, you're a pleaser. Yeah. You go at relationships in a nice, sweet, kind kind of a way. You're not a conflicting person by nature, right? You're not the kind of person to wake up and argue with people all day long, which some people say I can be. But (laughs) so now you're a director. You move into a director's role. In a director's role, you've got to look at people and say, no. You've got to look at people and say, no, that's not what I want you have yeah. to say no that's not good enough or that's not deep enough or pull more out or etc yeah,
1: is that trend only better
0: <laughs> yes so now you went from a yes sayer to in some cases
1: a no sayer yeah or a that's a great idea let's try it that way and let's try it this way and maybe we can you know maybe we can see both sides or see it later
0: and- so so do you avoid conflict by nature
1: um, I can't avoid conflict. Maybe that's why I do so well at that kind of acting because it must be in there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and it gets really good whenever I'm in that space. It's, you get intense. I yeah, I can get really intense. Um, and I, it's really hard to push me there in real life. Yeah. But once people do, they're like, whoa. Um, so, yeah, I don't
0: know. So, okay, so now 2015 rolls along. And this is an amazingly wonderful story of a young girl, right, from high school who has her dreams to be a model and an actress. And son of a gun, it happens, and you get to travel around the world, and you get to work on the best television shows and some of the greatest films and with some of the greatest directors and producers and talent. And all these wonderful dreams come true. And then in 2015, what happens?
1: Yes, I got diagnosed with MS, with multiple sclerosis. And um, my sister has it also. Mm. So when I started feeling things, I kind of knew in the back of my mind that it was there. And then um, the one symptom that I have that only people with MS have is Laramie sign, the barbershop thing. When I look down, there's lesions on my spine, so it'll shock me. And that happened, and so I called a neurologist and was just like, hey, I have MS, I'm gonna come in, do a spinal tap. Like I already knew what was gonna happen. Yeah. so, yeah, but it was very, very hard, very intense, very scary.
0: Did you have a fear of it beforehand, knowing that it was in the family?
1: No, because it's not common that brothers and sisters have it, right. that siblings have it. So, sorry, there's a truck beeping. thing. Um, so it
0: hit you out of left field. You had no idea that this was coming.
1: No, I definitely had no idea. I never thought anything like that. And, um, and you know, I'm living by myself in L.A. I don't have family out here um, you know, not so much support. I don't know if I'm going to be able to work. I don't know if anyone's going to hire me. My doctor told me to never tell anyone. And that's, it, that's what made me decide to do my horse ride across the country because the doctor said, look, you're going to be in a wheelchair in 10 years. You should do something that you really want to do. And don't tell anybody that you have it because they'll treat you different. and You'll never work again.
0: So tell everybody the story of the horse ride because it's a wonderful story.
1: So I had been riding horses. I booked a film and and I needed to ride bareback. So I've been riding horses. That's the precursor. I've been riding horses every day for like a year. Bareback, just running. And we were talking about the fantasy of riding a horse across the country already. And then I got diagnosed and I was like, well, what do I want to do? How do I want to make sure that I have some memory to look back on if I'm in a wheelchair? And I was like, well, I guess I'll just, I'm going to ride a horse across the country. And everyone's like, you're insane. I was like, it's not that hard if you just focus on the next 20 miles. You find water, you find somewhere to sleep, and you just do it. I'll just be a vagabond. So I don't mm-hmm. care. And then some people were um, wanting to film it, make a documentary, which I wanted to do too, but then they wanted to plan it and be like, okay, you have to be here at this time, this time, this time. And I was like, that's that, does, that right. doesn't work that way. you know. So anyway, so I started in Georgia. My horse went lame as soon as I got there. So we sat by a pond and lived by a pond for a couple oh. of weeks and then... We'd go go riding. I'd ride on dirt roads. I'd ride on the highway. I met amazing people. It was really beautiful. And then slowly I started losing function oh. and going numb. So my feet went numb and I thought, well, I'm on a horse. It doesn't really matter. I can get on and off. Yeah. And then my hands started going numb and then I lost feeling in my torso. And it, I didn't know if it was my hands or my torso that was more numb, but I felt like a dead body when I touched myself. And so I was like, oh, my God. Um, and then I was throwing my saddle onto my horse and my hands weren't working. So I would use my head and I'd push it up like that. And a farmer saw me doing that. And he's like, girl, what are you doing? (laughs) Like, oh, my hand's not working. So I use my head and I forgot I was even doing that. And he was like, you need to stop this. You're going to hurt yourself, you know? So I called my doctor and my doctor is amazing. Dr. Pelletier at USC. He's one of the lead researchers. Mm -hmm. Um, and he, Still talks about it. He's like, I could hear the horse's hooves pounding on the pavement. I'm like, hey, doc. So I think I'm in a relapse. I can't feel my hands or my feet or my torso. Wow. And uh, so he told me to go to a motel room and lay in an ice bath and sit in front of an air conditioning because maybe it was the heat. Mm. And maybe it was in a relapse because that could aggravate your lesions. Right, right. Um, So I have 15 lesions in my brain, four on my spine. And um, I did that. And he's like, call me on Monday. If it doesn't work, it's Friday. And I did, and it didn't stop. It kept getting worse. So I had to fly back, and I started Rituxan, which is one of the drugs in chemo. It's what they started. Now they're doing Ocrevus, but I didn't switch to Ocrevus. Um, and it, it seemed to work. It took about six months for my hands to come back, but uh, I would I would like to finish my ride. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't think I can do it on a horse. I don't want to damage myself anymore. But
0: you could do we'll it in a buggy. Sh-
1: I was thinking that. I was also thinking I could just do it on a bicycle. So I think that my instinct was correct, and you can tell me if you've ever heard about this. My instinct was exercise my body, calm my mind, and get to the next place. So my neurologist now says there's something that happens with the endorphins or something after people are running like 10 miles. When they're doing a lot of exercise, it becomes neuroprotective and maybe regenerative. Mm -hmm. So I think my instinct to do it was right. It was just the stress of having another animal psychology to deal with.
0: Right. That makes sense but it's still yeah. it's still a, a, an experience that I'm guessing you'd still want to have i mean how do you if you can do something like that how do you not to think of all yeah, the stops exactly. all the people the messaging that you can send also yeah. that you said something really powerful before your doctor told you not to tell anyone
1: yeah so i told everyone
0: so you th- was that instantaneous or did you think about that for a couple of days
1: i thought about it for a few days <coughs> and then i started making my website and being like no i'm not I'm not doing that because I know that in myself um, I can't keep secrets and I'm not a very good liar. So I did one job after I was diagnosed before I told anyone. And that was uh, that was with Ted Danson and he was sitting there and he was joking around all the time and I couldn't, I was trying to hang in with the jokes, but I was so like, Oh my God, I have this thing and I can't tell anyone. And then I was, I just started telling everybody because I thought that the stress of hiding something would be worse greater. for me yeah. than, te- yeah, than not working or whatever. It's like I can't I can't hold this secret in.
0: And it, it made yeah. your workflow better, I'm guessing, once you got it out, too. Because that's a Absolutely. powerful environment to work in, holding something like that that's so life-changing inside.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: How are you feeling now?
1: I feel great right now. Because um, you I look terrific,
0: gone... by the way. You do. You look terrific. You. So I, I was guessing you were going to say you're doing great.
1: I am. I'm doing really well. I'm working. I just came off of Strange Angel. And I also feel really healthy. I just got back from the Amazon literally two days ago, um, visiting tribes, going down the river and all that stuff, which I didn't know about the fire when I was there. And then I got back and got reception and was like, oh my God, but I was in Peru. So, Um, and then I'm on Rituxan still, and I've been on it for three years. And it's doing great. I have to do it in actually two weeks. I do my infusion. Mm -hmm. I'm tired for a little while afterwards, but now we're working on it. So we're cutting my dose of steroids in half because I think that's what harms me more than Mm -hmm. the rituxin Mm -hmm. is the steroid infusion. So we're going to try that and um, lessen some of the drugs. And I think everything's going to be good. I'm not panicking. So I'm like, I'm looking at it from a director's standpoint, right? Like, what (laughs) drugs can we lessen? How can we, you know, work with this and so I don't feel sick afterwards you know it's working
0: there's a lesson in this for anybody who suffers any kind of an illness I always say two things one medicine doesn't have to be local if something is wrong with you go to the best not the one down the street necessarily and that's a real perception that I'm trying to change you know in a whole medical world is people think that their medical sciences are limited to their neighborhood or their community But when we have a medical challenge, find the best. Medical care doesn't have to be local. It needs to be the best. Uh, And that's what what I think is is really important. And and I think the other uh, important lesson that I hear from your story is your ability to manage it and be involved in it. You're not letting it happen to you. You're managing its effect upon you. And that's really powerful and a lot of yeah. people who have medical challenges like this allow others to manage them instead of mm-hmm. themselves but you're not allowing that to happen are you
1: no no and i've been on a couple different drugs and and you know even when they wanted to switch me to ocrevus i read the clinical trials some people were getting breast cancer i think it's a little bit too new and they were really pushing for me to switch and i i just made the decision not to and then This isn't working for me. It's making me feel weird, but I always read the clinical trials. I do a lot of research. I read a lot of blogs. Um, there's one guy wheelchair kamikaze and he posts so much really great information. Mm -hmm. His is way more extreme than mine, but, um, but he knows everything about all the drugs and also alternative stuff. So Mm -hmm. I try to do a lot of research and really decide what I want, no matter what kind of pressure is out there. You know,
0: thank God there's a big community of information and such out there. Okay. I'm going to switch topics on you for a second. I'm guessing you're in your apartment or your house. And yeah. don't worry, I can't read those post-its on the wall behind you, so don't worry. I can't, re- <laughs> I can't read what they say, but I'm noting a couple of things. One, I'm noting the picture of Elizabeth Taylor on your desk. <laughs> Correct? So okay. That uh-huh. looks like a, a wall, uh, uh, an Andy Warhol type of uh, – so are you a big fan of Elizabeth Taylor? Is that a choice piece? Is that a coincidence that it happens to be there? I had to ask.
1: Yeah, no, that's a coincidence. I'm actually working on a movie uh, with my friend, and so that a lot of that stuff is her stuff, and we're just kind of, like, vibing and everything, so okay. it's a total coincidence.
0: <laughs> okay, so you're a pretty busy girl. You got a busy life, right? Mm-hmm. So I look at the Post-it notes behind you, and I notice, okay, we have orange ones, pink ones, yellow ones, and green ones. So <laughs> I also notice they're in a very neat rectangle. They're not stuck all over the place. They're extremely organized. It it is a, it is a very organized structure that you have. Are you very? Or are you, I'm having fun with you. Are you very organized as a person typically?
1: Yeah, I can be. Yes, yes. So, I try to. So for script beats and storylines and stuff like that, yeah, they get they get really um, written out and they are very clean lines.
0: So, so you like to storyboard your day, so to speak.
1: <laughs> Not
0: every day, but yeah, sometimes. Okay. okay, so is there a difference between the pink ones and the orange ones, or is the color just a coincidence of the pad?
1: Um, no, I think that's more of a coincidence.
0: Okay, so yeah. is what is the relationship of the top left one to the bottom right? Is one more important than the other? Is uh, there a yeah. logic to the way you put them together, or is that just something you want to stare at every day to remind you to to, to keep these things moving?
1: no it's just stuff to get done (laughs) gotcha so
0: you're like me so i'll do that kind of stuff too but when i stare at it every day it just constantly prompts me to move it along
1: yeah get it done and really really satisfying to mark it off or take it down that's like the best sometimes i'll write stuff that i know is really easy or i've gotten it done so that i can check it off because it makes me feel like i have progress
0: (laughs) (laughs) so you don't only do to do risks you do (laughs) Done lists.
1: (laughs) I do done lists. Oh, I totally do done lists. Like Towards the end of the day, I'll be like, okay, I did this and this and this and this, and then I'll write it down and cross it off. It's a little crazy.
0: You know, that's actually a pretty neat idea, though, motivationally. So if I had a list of 10 things to do on the left side of my page, let's say, and now I finish one, I move it to the right side of the page, that done list makes me feel pretty good, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, Yeah, it makes you feel really good, and then it gets you motivated to do your next to-do list because you've crossed those off and you make room. It's
0: fun. It is sort of fun. So it's like moving the puzzle pieces around. Are you? Yeah. Are you always this happy?
1: Kind of. Yeah. Not on infusion days, but
0: because <laughs> you're glowing. You are, Mar. And, and it's interesting. You. You're. A, a, and I don't want to make you blush, but when I was,
1: I'm i very hot. So.
0: <laughs> when when I when I talk to you now and see you as you really are, you know, and smiling, and we get to look in each other's eyes, albeit through screens. Boy, you, your characters you play are nothing like you.
1: I know. No, I've never gotten to really play something like myself, and I really want to.
0: But I it, think that it, would be fun. It just shows what a great actress you are, honestly. And, you Thank know, you. there are so many actresses, and I would never mention a name, who play themselves in every movie. And son of a gun, they get 30 movies out of it. God bless them. You know, it's terrific. Yeah, but, I'd love but, to do that. <laughs> but every time I see you, you're completely different. And you have this depth... At what you do. And I think it comes back to one thing. And I notice this is sort of an actor's cliche, but I'm going to say it. Courage. When you were that little girl, you had this courage to put yourself out there. The courage to go to Japan. The courage to go to San Francisco. The courage to go to L.A. The courage to walk in front of that camera. The courage to approach MS like you have. Right? In a life-changing situation. The courage to get on that horse. And there's one thing that uh, in, in the time that I've known you today that I know, you will get on that freaking horse again.
1: Of course. Because yes. that's who you are. Thank you.
0: Because that's yeah. who you are. You will Absolutely. always get on that proverbial horse. <laughs> Amara, this has been a wonderful talk. What are you working on now?
1: Uh, well, straight. That you can angel, talk about. Think, as you know, Strange Angel. Yep. And then I have... I'm working on building my script right now and getting it produced. We're getting funding. We have half the funding. And um, it is, it's a really great story. It's my parents in the seventies and I'm going to play my mom. And, um, and they had a really wild time. And of course it's dramatized and made bigger and everything, but it's dealing with Hell's Angels and going down to Mexico and coming through Texas. And it's kind of like a, I don't know. I don't want to say too much about it, but it's definitely action-y. I've, I've let people read it and they're like, oh, a woman wrote that? It's kind of like a good y from a female perspective, you know? So that's what I'm really working on and playing music too, so.
0: Oh, uh, well, that's really exciting. So uh, where can people find you if they have an interest in following you and connecting with you and watching you on social media or you know, where can we find you?
1: Well, I have uh, my Instagram, okay. which is birdo which is bridget bardo if she was a bird so it's ah. b-i-r-g-o-t
0: <laughs> b-i-r-g-o-t okay
1: uh-huh so and- birdo um and i think that's kind of it and i i started a necklace line and it's called alma magic and their sigils and i have one on right now i wonder if you can see it let me see they're little they're little magic spells can you see that i
0: can it's beautiful
1: so yeah so so um, is <laughs> each
0: one a different spell?
1: Each one is a, each one is a different spell. yeah, and this one is for my career. So this is personal. But I made some that will work for anyone for love, for abundance, for security, for safety, for gratefulness, for spirituality. And you wear it and it kind of projects that energy into your sphere, you know that you're doing. and um, and I tell you how to charge it through meditation and all this stuff. And we were working with Sigil's on Strange Angel, and I had been doing it for fifteen years by then. And um, I had these necklaces, and I was like, oh, I should put my necklaces out. But on Strange Angel, it's darker, and I do it, it's a little lighter. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so what is, that,
0: what is that website again?
1: That is amamagic.com, A-M-A-M-A-G-I-C-K.com.
0: Wow, that's neat. That's a cool gift idea, too, for somebody.
1: Yeah, it's really good gifts. A yeah. lot of people are really
0: into them. So. Yeah, I've got a feeling my wife might have one soon. Ooh. <laughs> anyway, Amar, this was a pleasure. I knew this would be fun, but, but you're just terrific. And I hope this was fun for you too. And your Thank story you, is, is really inspiring to people. And you. and, you know, sometimes, you know, being a modest and humble person as you are, you might not realize the magnitude of your influence on others.
1: No, and, I definitely
0: don't. and it's powerful. It is. And, and you know playing a role is one thing touching people's lives is another and uh, I look forward to seeing you back up on that horse again soon
1: thank you so much this has been a great time I really appreciate your time
0: my pleasure too take care okay bye boy what a great interview think of that moment when Amara said I'm going to Japan I'm going to go by myself I'm a young girl there's all sorts of reasons why I shouldn't do it There's all sorts of reasons why I should. I'm going to put my fear aside. I'm going to put my circumstance aside. I'm going to put my ego aside. I'm going to not use time as an excuse and make the time to go. And really, this is the story of my book, Don't BS Yourself. Cut the excuses that are holding you back. In that moment, Amara went for it. And that's really powerful. So I ask you, are you going for it? Because if you don't go for it, it never happens. And don't forget, subscribe right now. Do it right now. Any place where you subscribe to your podcasts.